What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello and welcome back to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. I am your host, Movie Mike. Today I will be ranking all nine films from Quentin Tarantino. Whether you love him, whether you hate him, or whether you're not even that familiar with his work, I hope you join me on this journey through cinema. This is all because his 10th and final film is being released and I might have a chance of being in this movie and I'll tell you why. In the review, we'll talk about the sci-fi film 65, and in the trailer park, we now have our first look at all the characters in the new Little Mermaid movie coming out in theaters later this year. So if you love it when I rant about Disney, stick around for that. Thank you for being subscribed. Shout out to the Monday Morning Movie Crew, and now, let's talk movies. In a world where everyone and their mother has a podcast, one man stands to infiltrate the ears of listeners like never before in a movie podcast. A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. Quentin Tarantino is reportedly working on his final movie. It is called The Movie Critic. If there was ever a movie I was going to be a part of, this would be it. So Quentin Tarantino, I am available. I will clear out my entire schedule to be a part of this movie. In all seriousness, though, if there is one director that I would like to sit down with and talk to about movies, it would be Quentin Tarantino. And as we are going to get into in this entire list, I will tell you about all the things that I love about his films. I would have to say he is my favorite director. As basic as that may sound, as much of a film bro that it may make me out to be, he is just somebody whose work I look at and think that is exactly what I want to see when I go to the movies. I love how much of a nerd he is. This guy loves talking about film, but not even just film in regards to movies. The literal film, the 70 millimeter film used to make a movie. He could go on and on about it. 
That's why I love listening to interviews with him. So I am a little sad that he is going to hang it up as a director after 10 movies. This is something he's been saying for a very long time now. He's doing 10 movies and done, but the project doesn't have a studio yet, although Sony is rumored to be a potential candidate for this movie. There aren't a whole lot of details out about this movie yet, but it's said to be set in the late 70s in Los Angeles. Not a lot of big surprises there. It has a female lead. Some sources have been speculating that the movie may focus on a very influential movie critic named Pauline Kael. And I actually heard him recently in an interview talking about her because he was out promoting his book. And he had asked her why she had never written a book. And she said, why would I write a book? I've already told my story in every single movie review that I've done. And that really set in with me. And I think that is something I've tried to carry over onto this podcast and something to you because yes, I do this podcast because I love movies. I like talking about why I enjoy or dislike movies, but I also set out to share a little slice of myself in each of those movie reviews. So that quote has really stayed embedded in my head ever since I heard him talking about her. So if it is based on her, that would be amazing. So before we get into this list, let's learn a little bit about our director, Quentin Tarantino. First of all, what exactly is a director? The term gets thrown around so many times. Maybe at this point you're afraid to ask. But that's okay. You don't have to worry about that on this podcast. A director is the creative lead in a film. They are the ones responsible for holding the creative vision throughout the whole process from the pre-production to the final edit. It all falls on their shoulders. A movie has an executive producer or a producer, and they are the ones who hire their director, and that director ultimately becomes in charge of the entire production. So they are the ones behind it all. They work with the cinematographers to get the look of the movie. They're involved in the editing. Some directors will edit a movie themselves. A director like Quentin Tarantino is very involved, most of the time, not only directing, but also writing his movies. It all goes back to him as a teenager. He started writing movies at the age of 14, and then he he dropped out of school in 16 to train to be an actor. He dropped out after two years and started working at a video rental store called Video Archives. And that is where his true love of movies really began to flourish because he was around them every single day. He said this is what influenced his directorial choices. He loved seeing people come in, pick out a movie, and asking them why they wanted to see this movie. Quentin Tarantino is a two-time Oscar winner both for original screenplay, he won in 95 with Pulp Fiction and 2013 with Django Unchained, but he has never won an Oscar for Best Director. So maybe for his 10th film, maybe, as we saw at this last Oscars, it was a lot of people who have been snubbed throughout the years finally getting their flowers. So how perfect a bookend it would be if Quentin Tarantino put out this 10th and final film about a movie critic truly playing in to the movie critics who are part of the Academy that will make this decision for him to win that at the end of his career, allegedly. That would make everything come full circle. And finally, before we get into the list, what makes a Quentin Tarantino movie a Tarantino movie? You'll find a lot of themes when breaking down his movies that we're going to get into. A lot of pop culture, a lot of dark humor, a lot of nonlinear storylines, lots of fun cameos, but most importantly, heavy use of profanity. I love that every movie has a look and a feel to it. 
And in my head, all of Quentin Tarantino's movies exist in this same universe. But I'm pretty sure he would hate that idea and never set out to create an entire Quentin Tarantino universe. So that is a little bit about our director. Now let's get into the list. At number nine, from 2015, I have The Hateful Eight. It has the longest runtime out of any Quentin Tarantino movie at two hours and 55 minutes, almost three hours long. And it is the one movie he has that I feel does not warrant that long of a runtime. If you haven't seen it, this movie is a Western set in the dead. It's about a bounty hunter and his prisoner who find shelter in a cabin and then discover all these crazy people living there as well. The movie made $152 million at the box office. I feel like this movie is about 55 minutes too long. And if there was one movie to be stricken from his career that I would not miss, this would be the only one. I don't believe he's ever made a bad movie, but this is one I saw once and never had to revisit again. He loves Westerns. Every interview I see him do, he loves talking about spaghetti Westerns. It's a very classic Hollywood concept, which he is just always drawn to. And I feel like out of all of his movies, even more so than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this was the most self-indulgent of just all the things he likes. And that is what nerds do. I can respect that. You are super into something. You want to make a movie completely about that subject. That's fine. But this one just doesn't really hit for me. There are so many plot points in this movie where I felt like it just dragged along. And I think that's because I just don't like Westerns. It has some decent performances, some good scenes. It's not a poorly written movie, but overall, when it comes to the story in this movie, it's the weakest of anything he's ever written. So at number nine, we are going with The Hateful Late from 2015. At number eight, from 2004, I have Kill Bill Volume 2. This movie made $154 million at the box office. It is the continuation, the sequel of Kill Bill Volume 1, where the bride, played by Uma Thurman, continues her quest of vengeance against her former boss and lover Bill, the reclusive bouncer Bud, and the treacherous one-eyed L. This was a big hit for Quentin Tarantino. It actually made more than Kill Bill Volume 1. And the thing about him, he doesn't make sequels, and the only reason there are two parts to this movie is because it was originally intended to be one big long movie, but he thought a three plus four hour movie would not screen so well. People wouldn't want to be invested in that. So he decided to split it into volume one and volume two. So if you watch them all together, it does feel like one big movie. But what a genius decision to split it up, make a lot more money off of this, when essentially all you had to do was film one big long movie. So I think that's why I like volume one better. This one has a little bit more of a slow burn. There's some good dialogue, some solid action but doesn't quite compare to part one. So maybe it's a good thing that he doesn't make sequels. He puts everything all into one part of a movie and then that's it. So that's why I put this one at number eight. At number seven from 1992, I'm putting Reservoir Dogs. It has the shortest runtime out of any Quentin Tarantino movie at only an hour and 39 minutes. It is also the lowest grossing movie out of any of his films, making only $2.99 million at the box office. But why is that? It's because it was his directorial debut and was only shown on a very limited amount of screens. But that didn't matter. This movie made him what seemed like a overnight success. So despite that small number at the box office, this is what rose him to directorial fame after this movie premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. He couldn't go walk out on the street without people recognizing him. 
And this movie was so ahead of its time that everybody just started doing copycat versions of Reservoir Dogs. If you look at movies in the 90s, everybody wanted to have a story like this. The list goes on and on with Reservoir Dog copycats. The most famous one for me being the Boondock Saints. That's exactly this movie. If you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs, the movie is about a simple jewelry heist going horribly wrong and the surviving criminals begin to suspect that one of them is a police informant. And I rarely say this, especially about his movies, but this is one I wish was longer. I remember the first time I watched this, I was thinking, that's it. Like, I want to see more. Great movie. Put him on the map. Reservoir Dogs is in at number seven. At number six, from 2019, I'm going with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with a runtime of two hours and 40 minutes. It is his third longest movie. It's about a faded television actor played by Leonardo DiCaprio and his stunt double played by Brad Pitt trying to make a comeback and achieve that fame and success that he achieved in the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969. Los Angeles. The movie made $377 million worldwide. And this is part of Quentin Tarantino's revisionist tales, which he is famous for. This one follows the Manson murders and is probably his most sophisticated movie. And I think that's why people love or hate this movie. I feel like critics love this movie, but the average moviegoer did not care for this movie whatsoever. And I think why that is, is because this movie has a very laid back plot. It's a lot of hanging out. It's a lot of slow action without a big narrative over the entire thing. So it feels unlike any other Quentin Tarantino movie. It's really his love letter to Hollywood. Again, he is fascinated with old school Hollywood, Los Angeles in the 60s, 70s. That is his jam. That is his jelly. So he set out to make a movie have that look, have that feel. If his career existed in the 60s and 70s, this is the type of movie he would have been making around that time. So I think the theme we see here is he is self-indulgent. But unlike in Hateful Eight, where he just made a straight-up Western, I felt like it lent itself to a much more fun movie-going experience. And I enjoyed watching this movie in theaters. I will say this movie felt a little bit long the first run through at two hours and 40 minutes. But for some reason, I just like the aesthetic of it. I like the feeling, the coloring of this movie. So I really enjoyed this movie. I won't say I completely love it as enough to put it in my top three. The reason that is, it doesn't have as much of a rewatchability as some of his other movies. But you can't deny having Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio together, two of the biggest movie stars ever. A pairing like this is what I live for, but I get why of all the people I've told about this movie, most of them hate it. Not me. I love Brad Pitt's performance as this aging stuntman. I love the rewriting history, Margot Robbie. And of course, it produced one of my favorite memes ever of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV. So at number six is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. At number five, I'm going with the movie from 1997, Jackie Brown, with a runtime of two hours and 34 minutes. This is one of his most underrated movies of all time. The movie is about a flight attendant with a criminal past who gets caught by the ATF for smuggling. 
And then they enforce her to become an informant against the drug dealer that she works for. So she has to find a way to get out of this entire situation without being killed. Pam Greer is amazing in this movie. But unfortunately, this is the movie that people are probably the most unfamiliar with from Quentin Tarantino. Some people would even say it's his most forgettable movie. And to those people, I say, what is wrong with you? I love the movies of Quentin Tarantino's that focus on a strong female lead, badass women. And that is exactly what Pam Greer does playing Jackie Brown. So maybe out of any one of his movies, it's the most straight ahead. And yes, you could argue if he stayed in this style, we would not be talking about him today. He would just become another director that had a hit in the 90s and then did a bunch of average movies. But to me, out of any of his movies, this has the best work when it comes to the writing. The fleshing out of all these characters from Pam Greer to Samuel L. Jackson, who plays one of his most unhinged characters out of any Quentin Tarantino movie that he's been in. So if you have not seen Jackie Brown, or maybe you haven't watched it since the 90s, go do it today, because this movie is great and it lands at number five on my list. At number four, speaking of awesome female leads, I am going with Kill Bill from 2003 with a runtime of one hour and 51 minutes. Uma Thurman plays the bride for the very first time in this movie. She's just awoken from a four-year coma after being betrayed by a former assassin, and she goes wreaking havoc and seeking revenge. And Kill Bill was his first movie since Jackie Brown. So there was a big gap between 1997 and 2003. So I felt like that was a contributing factor to there being buildup, there being hype around this movie, Quentin Tarantino being back with another strong female lead. But this one took it up on an entirely different level because he created one of the best action movies of the 2000s. The movie made $180 million worldwide on a $30 million budget which is bizarre to me that this movie was made with $30 million with all of the action sequences, the amazing wardrobe in this movie, landing a big star like Uma Thurman to play the lead, and the entire thing playing out like a twisted, dark bedtime story that you would tell your kids. I love the narration in this movie. But I think what sets this movie apart from every other movie that I've talked about so far is the final scene. One of the best third acts in any action movie the first time I saw that, it blew my mind. Uma Thurman in that yellow outfit resembling Bruce Lee, slicing people up left and right. The Bride became one of the most recognizable female protagonists of all time. In the 2000s, you could not escape a teenage boy's bedroom without seeing a Kill Bill poster planted up on the wall. So at number four, because of all those things, I have Kill Bill from 2003. Getting into the top three now, at number three, I'm going with Pulp Fiction from 1994 with a runtime of two hours and 34 minutes. The movie follows the lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster and his wife, and a pair of diner bandits and how all their four lives are intertwined. The movie made $213 million worldwide. It has what I would say is the best soundtrack out of any Quentin Tarantino movie. And it has the most non-linear narrative out of any of his movies. And that is the best thing about Pulp Fiction. The way I was introduced to this movie, the movie came out in 94. Before I saw it, because I was three years old in 94, I saw a Simpsons episode called 22 Short Films about Springfield, which came out in 1996, season seven, episode 21. I have those memorized. 
the only TV show that I can tell you exactly the episode title, what season, and what episode number because I had all the box sets of DVDs. Anyway, in that episode, they do a parody of Pulp Fiction, and that is how I was exposed to it. They play out the entire thing. Exactly how it's done in the movie is how it's done in the episode. It intertwines all the lives of the people in Springfield and they break it down scene for scene. You have Snake running over Chief Wiggum when he encounters him in the street. They start fighting. They get thrown into the guy's basement. So I remember watching that as a kid and thinking, ah, the Simpsons, they're so creative. And then realizing, oh, that's actually a movie. Simpsons do that a lot. I'm exposed to a lot of their parodies before I even realize they're an actual movie. I should probably do an episode on that. I think what this movie really established for him is how incredible he is at creating dialogue. This movie has some of the best dialogue out of any movie from the 90s. I credit a lot of that to Samuel L. Jackson's character, who drops so many F-words but has so many memorable lines. What? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you. Say what one more time. Or even just the one-liners. <laughs> This is a tasty burger. But most importantly, this movie showcased how great of a storyteller he is. It also gave us one of the best dance scenes and just has a really amazing cast from Quentin Tarantino himself has a role in this. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Bruce Willis, Tim Roth, Christopher Walken, <laughs> Ving Rames. This list goes on and on and on and on and on. Steve Buscemi. And it was also one of the first times I was introduced to how much he pays attention to the little things in a movie. My favorite movies of his have scenes with food that make me want to eat whatever that character is eating. And for this movie, it would be the Big Kahuna Burger that Samuel L. Jackson takes a big old bite out of. Mm -hmm. This is a tasty burger. It's a tasty burger. It's a tasty movie. At number three is Pulp Fiction from 1994. At number two, from 2012, I'm going with Django Unchained. With a runtime of two hours and 45 minutes, it is his second longest film, and the theme of this movie is revenge. With the help of a German bounty hunter, a freed slave played by Jamie Foxx sets out to rescue his wife from a brutal plantation owner in Mississippi. The movie made $450 million at the box office. So much money, I said million weird, $450 million. It is his highest grossing film of all time and his movie that probably pushed the envelope the most when it comes to the subject matter, when it comes to the dialogue, when it comes to all of the curse words, when it comes to the use of other words. It is probably the one that people criticize the most, that people just had something to say about this movie. It is at times hard to watch, but man, there are so many great performances in this movie from Kerry Washington, Christoph Waltz, Jamie Foxx, who you see a side of him come out that you'd never really seen before, and a lot of that is due to the performance that Quentin Tarantino was able to get out of him and how much he worked with him on really fine-tuning who Django is and really getting him into the headspace of what his character would be experiencing at this time. So you don't really see the cool, calm, collective Jamie Foxx. He was able to take that all away and take on the role of Django. This was a movie that opened on Christmas Day, which is, I believe at the time, was the third movie Quentin Tarantino had come out on Christmas Day. It was Django Unchained, Jackie Brown, and Hateful Eight all came out on Christmas Day. 
I don't necessarily think of Quentin Tarantino when it comes to Christmas, but hey, I'll take blood and guts over any other Christmas movie. The costumes in this movie are A+. The food imagery is also top-notch. I love the white cake. I love the scene when Django and Dr. King Schultz meet for the first time. They pour themselves a beer. It looks all foamy. He slabs off that foam with that little metal spoon-looking thing. And I don't drink beer anymore, but man, I would take one of those beers right now. This movie is what I would consider his second masterpiece. I believe what I put at number two and number one are two masterpieces that I would change nothing about these films. I think what he created in this movie was a villain that you just hate. You completely, utterly hate. Sometimes you can find a little shred of good in a villain. You see some kind of humility, but there is nothing good about Leonardo DiCaprio's character in this movie. And what I loved about Django Unchained is how they were able to create such tension. And that is something that maybe Quentin Tarantino doesn't get enough credit for. The ability to create tension with a camera, with dialogue, with amazing actors, that's all you need. No special effects, no really tricks to editing. That's it. That is the power of dialogue. That is the power of good writing. And I love when Quentin Tarantino movies have this moment where everything just goes down. S hits the wall and all the cards get thrown on the table. And that's what happens in the dinner scene where Leonardo DiCaprio's character, the villain in the movie, completely loses it. And tensions are at an all time high. Hey! Lay your palms flat on that tabletop. If you lift those palms off that turtle shell tabletop, Mr. Pooch is going to let loose with both barrels that sawed off. That is such a powerful scene. Leonardo DiCaprio proves that he is the best actor. He actually cut his hand with glass while hitting the table. It's continued to stay in character and play out the scene with real blood. I think the blood they actually used to smear on Kerry Washington's face ended up being fake blood after he got checked out, but still an amazing moment. I hated Leonardo DiCaprio's character, but I loved the way he talked. Make these gentlemen a receipt for $12,000, please. It was a pleasure doing business with y'all. Now, gentlemen, if you care to join me in the parlor, we will be serving white cake. Like I wanted that Big Kahuna burger, like I wanted a drink of that beer, I wanted a piece of that white cake. Well, gentlemen, you had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. So at number two, I am going with Django Unchained from 2012. Before we get to number one, there are some honorable mentions. Even though he only has nine movies he considers to be his full-length feature films, he does have another couple movies that he has directed. Death Proof, which came out in 2007, which was a double feature, a grindhouse production with his director buddy, Robert Rodriguez. So the second part of this was his movie, Planet Terror. I don't know why he doesn't consider this to be one of his movies. I guess because it was that joint project. But Death Proof is pretty solid. My favorite of those two movies would happen to be Planet Terror, though. So maybe that's why he doesn't count it. But the movie did make $50 million at the box office. The other honorable mention would be From Dust Till Dawn, which he didn't direct, but he starred in it and he wrote it. But that movie was directed, again, by his director buddy, Robert Rodriguez. A great movie, if you haven't seen that one. And you want to see his acting abilities, which he's not the best actor. He is a good actor, but I really like him as one of the leads in that movie alongside George Clooney. And he also co-wrote and directed a movie called My Best Friend's Birthday, which came out in 1987, which most of the film reels were almost completely destroyed in a fire. So good luck finding that one. But at number one, 
the best Quentin Tarantino movie of all time, if you haven't guessed it by now, from 2009, it is Inglorious Bastards with a runtime of two hours and 33 minutes. The movie is, again, Quentin Tarantino rewriting history. It takes place in Nazi-occupied France during World War II. You have a group of Jewish U.S. soldiers on a mission to assassinate Nazi leaders, including Hitler. And that just so happens to coincide with a theater owner's vengeful plan to do the exact same thing. Again, the theme here is revenge. And this movie gave me the most gratifying feeling of revenge I've ever felt in a movie. And it made me fall in love with the idea of making a movie and rewriting history. And what a subject to pick. World War II, where you have the most hateful figure in all of history, Hitler, and being able to make a movie where he completely gets obliterated and all the Nazi ideology is just viewed and portrayed in a way that it is this ugly, disgusting force. And all of the people they have done wrong, all of the people that they have killed are able to rise up and fight back and unleash that same vengeful power against them. That is so powerful. You have an incredible cast in this movie from Brad Pitt again, in my favorite role that he has ever done. Playing Aldo the Apache, I just love the way he just talks in this movie. You'll be shot by this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. And Quentin Tarantino made Christoph Waltz a star with this movie, playing one of the most hated villains in all of cinema. Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo? You just say bingo. Bingo! How fun! (laughs) Sorry, I get so excited about that scene. And then I love all the side characters, the supporting cast, from Eli Roth as the Bear Jew, BJ Novak as the Little Man, you have Hugo Sticklitz, all of these just cool names. That combined with the look and feel of this movie having a red color palette. If I could get a color palette tattooed on my back, it would be the Inglorious Bastards color palette because it just looks so, mm, so beautiful. And this movie has my favorite moments of tension that we've been talking about on this episode. The scene at the bar wherever all the U.S. soldiers are there, but posing as Nazi soldiers and how you can create this incredible standoff that all just begins from these characters having a conversation and how every single word on that page of script is so important to building that tension. And just the small little inflections that they do that add so much weight to the scene. And then it's all the bullets flying, of course, that makes it visually stimulating and the very grotesque, very brutal violence that ensues after that is, you know, Quentin Tarantino's edge. But it all comes back to that dialogue. And that's what makes him so powerful. Again, just the camera, just actors, just the words on the page are able to do this. And that is the best example of it in this movie. And then it has the best use of food in any of his movies when Hans is interrogating Shoshana and then you have the strudel with the creme. I would take that brutal interrogation just to have a bite of that strudel. You also have one of the most satisfying third acts when you make it to that theater in Paris 
and her plan succeeds where she is able to lock all of these Nazis in this room, including Hitler, and burn the place to the ground. So you have one of the best looking movies of all time, one of the best villains, the best dialogue, the best cinematography. It is a perfect movie. It is his only other second masterpiece. And on top of that, it was my best movie theater experience of the 2000s. Came at a time where I really needed a movie like this. I had just graduated high school in 2009. Came out in the summer. I was in that weird transition where you go from high school to college. And this movie is the best thing that happened to me that year. And a movie that has a runtime of two hours and 33 minutes does not feel like that whatsoever. I watched this movie recently. I started it on a plane, which tends to be a thing I've been doing lately. I didn't finish it on the plane, but I came home and made sure I finished watching this movie because it is that good still after all these years. So at number one, from 2009, the best Quentin Tarantino movie of all time is Inglorious Bastards. If you think I ranked one of these movies wrong, let me know what your ranking would be. Send me an email, moviemikeD at gmail.com, or hit me up on socials at MikeDistro on everything. We'll come back and talk about 65. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Let's get into our movie review now. I want to talk about 65 with Adam Driver. We now have our first bomb of the year. Whenever a movie comes out and it just starts getting ripped to shreds by critics, it has a low Rotten Tomato score. I try not to pay too much attention to that because as a movie fan, as a movie goer, as a movie reviewer, I like to be the judge myself because I don't always buy into all that. And for you who listen to this podcast, I want to let you know from my perspective, 
I saw the reviews, I saw the score, but I was giving this movie the benefit of the doubt because of the premise. It's about an astronaut who crash lands on a mysterious planet only to discover he is not alone. It's actually the Earth 65 million years ago. That is what this movie is about. Adam Driver plays the main character, the astronaut, the pilot of this ship. And then he, with the only other survivor of the crash, is this younger girl, and they try to find their way back home. So that is the premise of the movie. We'll get into what I think about it. And if you want to hear a review where I just go and rip a movie to shreds, be prepared because that is what we're going to do here. But here's just a little bit of the 65 trailer. I don't know where we are. I've located one survivor. A child. The atmosphere is breathable. There's something alien out there. Even that trailer is boring. So a couple of things that I look for when deciding whether a movie is going to be good or not, I find them in the trailer. First thing up in this trailer is the title of the movie, 65. That is a boring title. That is not a sexy title. It's also kind of a confusing title and a hard movie to search for. Even looking up things about this movie, I would type 65 and I would just get like math problems. So bad title. And then you look into how they are selling the movie. They're really cashing in on that tagline, that quick little premise. An astronaut crash lands on a mysterious planet only to discover he's not alone and it's Earth 65 million years ago. You think, how could a movie be bad with such a great premise? If you are able to sell a movie in one line, it is probably going to suck. Because it just appeals to the studio, it appeals to the way you promote a movie. If you can sell a movie in one line, I don't want to watch it. It's not going to be very good because you're only selling me the sizzle. I know that there's going to be no substance whatsoever in that movie. Very few have proved me wrong. Very few have proved me wrong. But if you're banking on a tagline, that movie is going to suck. So when it comes to 65, I didn't like the title. The storyline in the beginning, it's a little confusing and it just kind of jumps very quickly. So it's about Adam Driver's character. He is living on this planet with his family. His daughter is having to undergo this treatment. Treatment is very expensive. So in order to pay for it, he takes on this mission. But it's going to take him away for two years. But he's going to make three times his salary. So Even though he can't be there for his daughter, he is able to go on this mission and pay for it. He comes back two years later. So it's him having to make that hard decision. But you don't really get too emotionally invested in the beginning because that happens, conversation with his daughter, and then he's gone. You're like, oh, I guess he's going now. And then he is flying through space. He gets hit by this asteroid, hits his ship. He goes down, lands on this planet, and then that's where our story kicks off. This movie just had no imagination whatsoever. And there are a lot of good elements here. You have dinosaurs. You have sci-fi. You have a ship. You have Adam Driver, who is a great actor. He played a good villain in Star Wars as Kylo Ren, so he can do that. I don't question his abilities as an actor, but there was nothing here to chew on. And you think, how can you make a movie about dinosaurs boring? But what this movie kind of was in the beginning... It's kind of a Toy Story ripoff. Even what you heard there in the trailer is him crash landing on this planet. 
scoping it out. He's like, oh, it's breathable. That's exactly what happens to Buzz Lightyear when he first lands in Andy's room. That exact same scene, 65 ripped it off. This movie was also kind of a slow burn, and you can't really slow burn a sci-fi movie. Not with a movie like this. Get into the action. And where it really fumbled the ball here is it didn't really own any of the genres it was living in. Is it a sci-fi movie? Is it a dinosaur movie? Or is it just this crazy space movie? It wasn't really anything. And not only that, it was plagued by a lot of lazy things. Lazy writing, cheap special effects. There were things going off like smoke. It looked like I was on a ride at Disney. And they're like, all right, fire the smoke. And that's exactly what happened in the movie. Was this movie made in 2006? What was going on here? Even down to the music in this movie, it was almost like they just went to moviemusic.com, grabbed some tracks, slapped on some MP3s on this movie, and there it is. It really made me realize how much effort goes into making a good dinosaur movie like Jurassic Park. You think all you have to do is throw some dinosaurs on the screen and it's entertaining. That's kind of what I thought was the formula in the latest Jurassic Park reboot trilogy. But when you see this, you realize it's not just that. You got to create something else because there are T-Rexes in this movie. There are lots of other dinosaurs in this movie. And you just don't really care when they are on the screen. It made Jurassic World Dominion look Oscar worthy. The best part about this movie was his gun. It kind of reminded me of that Turok video game. If you ever played that on N64, he was a dinosaur hunter. If there was one thing I could take away from this movie, it was like, okay, that's actually kind of a cool gun. But it didn't really make me buy into the fact that Adam Driver's character was good at his job. Why did they pay this guy three times his salary? Everything in this movie was him failing. He didn't do anything heroic. He didn't do anything good. He is not good at his job. Were they just trying to get rid of him? Like, hey, man, send him out on a space mission. He'll be gone two years. He won't make it back. It was almost like they set him up in this movie because he wasn't good at his job. He wasn't really that great of a lead. It wasn't really that great of a character. I cared nothing about his relationship with the other survivor, the young girl in this movie. Not dogging on her whatsoever. She did what she could with that script. But with a movie like this, you can't be mediocre. And I tend to like movies that have a very limited cast. Movies that are in space tend to have that because... They are so expensive to make. You're paying for the ships, all the special effects, everything else going on. They usually have a very limited cast. Also, space is just very isolating. That's how those movies kind of work. But in this case, it didn't do it for me, especially when you have a TV show out right now like The Last of Us, where it's all about older guy, younger character, him trying to protect her. You have that show doing it so well so to do a movie similar like this and it be so bad and so uninspiring, you can't do that. There were a lot of moments that I was just like, what am I watching? <laughs> Very much some LOL moments that were not supposed to be LOL moments. I won't ruin anything in case for some reason you decide you want to go watch this movie. But there is a part where his character falls into quicksand. Quicksand in a movie in 2023? I just wasn't buying into this. With this subject matter, you deserve to be submerged into that world. This movie felt like I was just watching an actor on a movie set. I was so aware of everything happening. So it was like Adam Driver's character in Girls, 
became a movie star and this is the movie he went on to do. So it was almost like really with any TV show when somebody becomes an actor and like, I'm going to be in a movie and they play the trailer and it's very like cheesy and elaborate, very like what you make out a big Hollywood movie to be. That is what this was like. It was like a parody movie that went into something else. It was that bad. So this movie should have really owned a genre. I think the space it could have been really cool in if they just made a straight up horror movie with dinosaurs. That is something that hasn't been done. Nobody has the budget for that. I don't know what Sony was doing. They're taking a big hit on this one. Movie has not done well at the box office, has only made $22.4 million today in the United States, about another $9 million internationally, but it has a but it had a budget of $45 million, so I don't really see it making that back up. Maybe when they start playing it on airplanes or cable, it'll make a little bit back. But man, a movie I wanted to like. When I first saw the trailer, I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I like dinosaurs. I like Adam Driver. I don't like any of the things together. So for 65, I give it one out of five, Dinosaur Prince. It's our first bomb of the year. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine washable, and great looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's KNIX.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's KNIX.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It's time to head down to Movie Mike's Trailer Park. I feel like I just went on this rant a couple episodes ago with Peter Pan, but we are back because we have our first real look at The Little Mermaid. They put out the poster, they put out a teaser, but we really didn't get a look at what all the animals are going to look like under the sea, and now we have it. And not what I was expecting at all. I want to get into what I fully think about The Little Mermaid and what Disney is doing with all of their live-action 
remakes of all their most famous movies. But before we get into that, here is just a little bit of the new The Little Mermaid trailer. You broke the rules. You went to the above world. A man was drowning. I had to save him. This obsession with humans has to stop. I just want to know more about them. Ariel, don't! Poor child. I can help you. You can't live in that world unless you become a human yourself. Is that even possible? (laughs) It's what I live for. So this movie entirely doesn't look what I was expecting. I wondered how they were going to make all the undersea creatures look because we've seen live action reimaginations of Disney movies like The Lion King. And the reason that one felt a little bit off to me is because it took away the charm that was the animated version of The Lion King. It took the exact same story and created these quote unquote live action animals, which were really just computer animated realistic looking animals and i thought they would maybe do something different with the little mermaid because it's one thing to animate a lion to animate a warthog and give them a you know a different voice that makes a little bit more sense to me that looks a little bit more appealing to me but when it comes to watching fish under the sea it's not as appealing it's not as cute there is something cute about sebastian as a cartoon flounder as a cartoon but when it comes to them in a live action form honestly looks a little bit creepy are kids even going to be into the idea of this movie now you do have a great lead here you have Haley bailey which i wonder how many times people get her name wrong and call her Halle berry just because it looks similar to it but it is Haley Bailey as Ariel. She looks like a great Ariel. There's nothing that strikes me weird about the human element to this movie. Javier Bardem as King Triton. Melissa McCarthy as Ursula looks perfect. I think it's just I was expecting this world to look a little bit different, to look a little bit more fun and imaginative and not so right on the nose. They debuted this trailer at the Oscars, which I like that. I feel like we get so many debuts of trailers in the Super Bowl. Why not in the Super Bowl of movies? Interesting thing about this, though, is they showed the trailer during the Oscars, and it actually cost them $10 million to do that. Disney paid $10 million to show this two-and-a-half-minute trailer during the Oscars. But Disney also owns ABC, which is where the Oscars were broadcast on. So it's almost like they paid themselves $10 million to showcase their own movie. This movie appears to follow the exact same story as the original animated movie, which came out in 1989. You have Ariel being fascinated with the world above the sea. You have Prince Eric, but she is a mermaid and forbidden to interact with humans. But in order to follow her heart, she makes a deal with the evil sea witch. Ursula who gives her the chance to experience life above the sea and from what I've seen in this trailer I think this is going to be the first real big bomb of Disney's live action remakes and that's because I don't think this story translates I don't think they're going to have the same success that they had with other stories like this like Beauty and the Beast, Dumbo, Aladdin, and The Lion King. I think Disney is almost in a space of they are too big to fail when it comes to their historic movies. But as we saw with Pinocchio, which didn't come out in theaters, it was a Disney Plus exclusive, they can do wrong. And a lot of the times they make up for it with a lot of marketing as we saw 
with what they did at the Oscars, showing the trailer there. Not only do they have the money to promote the movie, but they also have the legacy of Disney. Ah, we made a new Little Mermaid movie. We are Disney. Here it is. I just think that when it comes to this one, it's going to catch them off guard when it doesn't do that well opening weekend. We're seeing now for the first time that Disney movies in theaters aren't a hit. And maybe it's because they're a victim of their own plan here with Disney+. Plus. You have given people the ability to watch your movies at home, and they're already paying for that there. And it is largely beneficial to families to save money. You don't have to go to the theater to watch a kid's movie and take all your kids. You can just put it on at home. We saw that with Strange World that did not do well at the box office, even though it's a pretty good movie. I can only imagine if they had actually put Pinocchio out in theaters, how much money they would have lost on that movie. And maybe they are kind of playing their cards with the movies they choose to put out in theaters and the ones they choose to put out on Disney+. Plus. Maybe they're not taking that risk with Peter Pan and Wendy. And they believe a little bit more in The Little Mermaid. So I think it's unfortunate that this movie won't do so well, mainly because the people involved. I like all the actors. I love the lead Halle Bailey. I love Javier Bardem, Melissa McCarthy, David Diggs as Sebastian. Has a great cast. I just think it has no artistic vision. And that is what Disney in the past has done best. Brought stories to life, made things that are magical, not just cash decisions to bring back movies from back in the day. If I was a kid watching a movie like this for the first time, I don't feel like I would be experiencing that same magic. Disney has always been on the cutting edge of technology and animation, and they're not doing anything inventive here. Nothing that I see in this trailer looks like it's pushing any kind of boundary that Disney has been known for. They're kind of giving up on that a little bit. So it's not only that they are making a remake of one of their most famous movies, it's that they're not even putting that much effort into it. I want to see the same level on The Little Mermaid that I see in Avatar. Throw some motion capturing technology on your actors. Make the cute, cuddly fish a little bit more cute and cuddly. That is what they are known for. That is what they are famous for. And I think the only way this movie will make up for that is with the performances and with the songs, which you can't deny the power of a Disney song. So I'm not always drawn to the musical aspect of Disney movies. As a kid, sometimes I would skip over the songs. I'll be honest, except for The Lion King, I can do without some Disney songs. So as I've said before, I will go see this movie, but I will not be happy about it. And I want to see how this changes, how this alters their plans for all the movies they have coming out. Because more live action is on the way. We have Peter Pan and Wendy coming to Disney+. Plus, and then we have Mufasa, The Lion King coming out in 2024. And also in 2024, we have Snow White. So they aren't slowing down on their live action remakes. I just want them to put the magic back in their movies. Make a Disney movie more exciting again. Because I think my future kids deserve better. And that was this week's edition of Movie Minds Trailer Park. I don't know why Disney live action movies get me so fired up, but that is my rant for this week. Thank you for listening. Before I go, I got to give my listener shout out of the week. Do it every single week to somebody who sends me an email, moviemikeD at gmail.com. Hits me up on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, or Facebook. And this week I'm going over to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Mike Distro. 
And this week's listener of the week is Caroline Menarek, who commented on my Scream 6 review and said, you are so entertaining. Love to listen to your critiques. Keep up the good work, Mike. You are appreciated. Thank you, Caroline. You are this week's movie crew listener of the week. And I don't share comments like this to boost my own ego. Like, oh, look how cool everybody thinks I am. Look how much everybody loves the podcast. But the reason I share these comments is honestly, I'm surprised. I love doing this podcast. I love everybody who listens. I love you right now. Straight up, just I love you because this is my favorite thing to do. And I just am surprised when other people care. I feel like when it comes to anything creative, you put things out and it feels like it goes to nobody. And I've been going through this period of my life right now that I've kind of entered this, I don't really care what people think about me mentality. Not meaning that I don't care and I'm going to put out crap, but meaning that I want to be my truest self and I want to portray how I really am, the most authentic version of myself without worrying about the critique of others. And sometimes I think like, ah, I talk about movies too much. People are going to find me annoying. I do this podcast and I post these clips and it feels like I am ruining everybody's feed, everybody's timeline. So whenever I see somebody like Caroline share a comment like that, it makes me not want to quit. It makes me feel like I'm actually doing something that even if it's just Caroline, even if it's just you listening right now that gives a crap, that's enough for me. This is all I've ever wanted to do. If I had a perfect situation, a perfect way I could earn money in life, it would be just to watch movies and talk about them and express my thoughts and share them with you and do this podcast. So the fact that you take any amount of your week and spend it here on this podcast or go over on my social media and comments and messages, I love you for that. I love going back and forth into my DMs. And I just love that element out of anything when it comes to doing this podcast. So thank you, Caroline. Thank you for listening. Hope you come back next week. We'll be talking about the new Shazam movie. We also have John Wick coming up after that. It's a great time to be a movie fan. So I'm glad you're here. Until then, go out and watch good movies. And I will talk to you later. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.